Let us pray. God our Father, may we look forward with hope to, the, to our own resurrection. For you have made us your sons and daughters and restored the joy of our youth. We ask this through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. All right, you should have a handout coming around, number 15. We're going we're gonna to press on a bit. Um, but let me just ask before we get going, I was, you know, I was stunned. Um, must have been right before Palm Sunday. Hey, boys, back from the battle, huh? How'd that work out? All right. Seventh and eighth grade retreat. That, uh, that's great. I didn't think I'd, I didn't think I'd see you. That's great. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, a couple weeks before, before Easter, I think the week before Palm Sunday, there were a number, a number of questions, probably 20 or 30 questions, which was great. Last week, there were very few questions. I think one. Um, are there... Are there any questions before we press on? We're going to go back to James chapter 3, which is specifically about taming the tongue, which is very helpful now that we've tried to figure out who Jesus is and who the Christian is. But any questions as we press forward? Yeah. 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 What Penny said was, at its simplest, is it safe to say that James was written to a congregation who needed to hear what James had to say, and Galatians was written to the Galatian church who needed to hear what Paul had to say? Exactly. I mean, um, all pastoral care and all law gospel is specific. So James is writing to a specific need. The specific need to the con of the congregation to whom James is writing um, is that they, hey, how are you? Do you want to go right over here? Is that easier for you? Go right ahead. Mm -hmm. The specific need within that congregation is that they all claim they have faith, and yet um, the Pharisees are saying, how come you don't do any good works? So James is saying, if you have faith, you'll naturally live a life of good works. The congregation to whom Paul is writing in Galatians is saying, we came to faith through our good works. And Paul's saying, no, 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 no. You came to faith by the work of the Spirit and now you're sent off to live this life of good works. Okay? So Paul and James are not contradicting each other, but they're writing to two specific needs. Okay? Good. That's very helpful. Any other questions? Let me ask you this. S thus far, you know, it says number 15 on the top of here. That probably means we're through about 20 weeks or 22 weeks. Is this stuff you've heard before, not heard before? Does it rub you the right way, the wrong way? What's your, what's your take on Galatians? And I got a thumbs up in the back. That's good. What's your take so far on Galatians and James and reading these two things together? Okay. Rainy day. It is a rainy youth retreat. What's your take thus far? Has it been okay? My guess is um, Galatians is like going home for all of you. And uh, James is a bit like, uh, James is thinking outside the box. And my guess is, for some of you who have been Lutherans for a long, long time, James may kind of rub you the wrong way. And the goal in all, all of this is to show that what James is saying is precisely in the way of the gospel. And James is actually, as we just said, is not contradicting St. Paul. So hopefully, um, hopefully you can see that now after 20 weeks or so and begin to press on a bit. Okay, anything else? All right, look at your handout. 
a few things, and you should have on your very last page, again, the text. I try to give you the text on your last page. A few things to tend as we move forward. And this, again, this is from last week, but I think it's important to remember this as we kind of surge ahead here. The fullness of Christ. What Pastor Bruce had talked about for three or four weeks was who Jesus is. There is one Christ, divine and human, two natures. This is all Lutheran stuff, by the way. Who speaks one word, law and gospel, does his one work, justification and sanctification, to recreate his one creation, heaven on earth and heaven in heaven. So, as Pastor Nelson said this morning, you know, there's no gaps with Jesus. There's no gap between you, uh, heaven on earth, and the creation which now rests with Jesus, heaven in heaven, with angels, archangels, and all the company of heaven. But naturally, then, if you understand who Jesus is, you should begin to understand who the Christian is. There is one Christian, this is you and me, sinner and saint, who is redeemed in one way, justification and sanctification. Lutherans tend to rail against sanctification. That's the way Jesus redeems you. And pushed out to live one life, a life of faith, trust in God, and a life of works. And then as we ended last week, how it all comes together for us, that's gospel in us, that's participation, and through us, that's love for the neighbor. Jesus saves. Very important. And I hope none of you at the end of this can say, Gainick and Bruzik said something other than Jesus saves. Jesus saves. He saves by delivering himself to you through his gifts. He is received. This is St. Paul language. Remember I told you last week, the great gospel word, what I received from the Lord. The Lord gives and you receive. He is received with an open hand and a hearty thank you very much. That's the, you know, that's the long way of saying amen. He alone saves because he is pure gift, purely for you. The problem plaguing the Galatian church. Does Jesus save or doesn't he? Yet, and this is the participation bit. Yet, from the very moment that Jesus touches you and heals you and saves you, his Christological touch is everything. Coming in contact with Jesus saves. He joins himself to you in a concrete, tangible, life-giving way. And once he joins himself to you, or as Ephesians 5 says, once you and Jesus are one flesh, he begins to do his good gifting through you. And doing good works then is simply evidence that Christ has, Christ has joined himself to you and that, he is, and that he is having his way with you. Okay? So, remember the, uh, uh, an easier way to talk about justification is Christ having his way with you. You're out and now you're in. An easy way to talk about sanctification of the Christian life is Christ having best possible use of you. Now that you're in, what does the life look like? If there is no evidence, then there, then there may not be a Christ present. And if there is not a Christ present, then there may not be faith. And if there is not faith, then we are dead. The problem plaguing the church to whom James is writing. Okay, does that make sense? Everybody tracking that? That's Galatians and James thus far. And now we'll kind of move ahead within the book of James, where he'll talk more specifically about what the Christian life is to look like. With the tending of our theology. Okay? Trying our hardest to get Christ and the Christian right. That's point one. With the tending of our theology comes the taming of our tongues. So James has today, James chapter 3, 1 to 12, some practical advice 
for pastors and Christians. So look at your text there. Just the very beginning, verse 1. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach, teach will be judged with greater strictness. Chapter 3, verse 1. And in your outline then, you have a great quote there from Bo Reiki. Being a preacher or being a pastor involves a grave responsibility. And as his privilege is greater, now what would the privilege of being a pastor be? Why don't you answer this and not me? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you are exactly right. I'm going to retire at 37. Yeah, yeah exactly. Okay, so the income, great. Uh, what else? What would the privilege? What would the privilege be for a pastor? I wish it was that easy. A life of devotion all day long, every day. I think people often think that what pastors do is they say their prayers all day and read the scriptures, and that's about it. That, that actually, some pastors do. That would be great. Um, and that certainly is, is part of the life to which Jesus is called pastors. You know, he tells his apostles often, go off to a desolate place and pray, right? What else would be the, see, now, now all the hands go up. No one had anything until I say, what's the life of a pastor look like? Go ahead, Kovic. Okay, probably, as Bo Reiki says, um, how does he phrase it? His privilege is greater. The privilege of a pastor is, uh, I would say, delivering the Lord's gifts. Yeah. In the Old Testament, with the priesthood, you know, very few people are given to enter the Holy of Holies. And you see this with Zechariah, especially. You know, he's in there kind of tending the incense, and the Lord appears, and the Lord words him, and he doesn't receive the word, so suddenly he can't speak. But uh, with the priesthood, there is given a great privilege, primarily the privilege of being within the Holy of Holies and touching the Lord's gifts, and then delivering those gifts to others. Okay? Or as you hear every Sunday, in the stead and by the command. Stead, if you go home and look it up in the Oxford Dictionary, it says not just in the place of, but in the place of and for your advantage, which is very important. When we say on Sunday morning, in the stead and by the command of Jesus, that doesn't just mean that Gainick, Bruzek, or Nelson stand in Jesus' shoes. It means they stand in Jesus' shoes for your advantage. And it's only for your advantage because they actually deliver the Lord's gifts. Absolution, right? Altar, pulpit, font, confessional. Those are the places where the Lord is located. So very good. So one, one, one of the major privileges is um, to, be a, to be a delivery boy may be too trite. I mean, I think that's important when congregations don't understand who Jesus is, but eventually you, know, you, you kind of get past that. But to deliver the Lord's gifts, that's part of the privilege of being a pastor. What else would a privilege be? Good pay, you said, yeah. Uh, lots of hours to read and pray, good. Deliver the Lord's gifts. Yes, Carol. It's a privilege to see Christ working in others. Now, the hope is, through all this that you see, you folks see, that can be your privilege as well. Right? Um, I think it's a, it's, a, it's a tendency of ours to say all the good works within the church, stewardship, helping people out, acts of mercy, words of witness, care of the soul, those are given primarily to pastors. And so you folks say, we're not involved in all that. We don't get to see all the good that the Lord is doing. 
What we're trying to push you towards is saying that's for us too. Okay? What else? Yeah. Okay, so speak. Yeah, so speak the Lord. Speak the word of the Lord, and uh, interpret that Lord for the, that that Lord that word for the congregation. And that's actually helpful as we move ahead because what James is going to talk about here is pastors who don't do that. Okay, pastors who use their tongue for destruction, uh, and consequently congregations or members who use their tongue for destruction. So let's press ahead then. Being a preacher involves a grave responsibility. I mean, here's the responsibility. All you folks on the last day, when the Lord says, what kind of good did you do? He's primarily going to talk about you, your own life, and your family. So were you a good husband? Were you a good father? Did you tend your own soul? However, when a pastor stands up, you know, I got all you guys and all the people who have ever come through these doors, the Lord will say, what kind of good did you do with those people? So, the responsibility is great. I mean, how many members do we have? 2,000. Yeah, roughly. 2,000 members. So there'll be 2,000 people the Lord's going to say on the last day, what did you do with them? Okay? It'll be more than 2,000. Well, it'll be more than 2,000. That's, you know, I'm glad you're laughing. <laughs> uh, yeah, it'll be, it'll be a lot. But that is, you know... Um, it's very humbling to know that on the last day the Lord's going to say, what did you do with these, my sheep? So the responsibility is grave. However, the privilege is great. The privilege is to deliver the Lord's good gifts. So his condemnation will be, <laughs> will be the more severe. Okay? So if a pastor doesn't tend his flock because the privilege is so great, the responsibility so grave, the condemnation will be the more severe. Okay? That is, um, you pray every day that when the Lord squares it up, there's a lot of forgiveness there. Okay? However, however, just as there is a relationship between Christ and the church, Ephesians 5, Christ is the head, the church is his body, so also there is a relationship between pastor and congregation. In a very real sense, the congregation is the body and the pastor is the head. This is the way Jesus sets up the church. That's why when the pastor says, in the stead and by the command, he's in the stead and by the command of the head. Okay? Of the head. So just as there is a relationship between Christ and his body, the church, so is there a relationship between the pastor and the local church. What goes for the first, what goes for the first, should naturally go for the second. What goes for Jesus should naturally go for his church. What goes for a pastor should naturally go for his congregation. Okay? And I'm saying that because some folks will read this text, James chapter 3, and say, it's all about pastors, it's not about me. Well, narrowly speaking, it is about pastors, it's not about you. But what goes for a pastor goes for his congregation. Okay? What follows from James, then, is for both pastors and congregations. Verse 2, for we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. The acknowledgement, and this is important to remember, the acknowledgement that we all stumble 
is in no way a concession to sin. Okay, you hear this sometimes, especially from Lutherans. I sin all the time and I'm saved by grace, so it doesn't matter how I live. That is not what James is saying here. The acknowledgement that we all stumble, specifically stumble with our mouths, with our, with our tongues, is not a concession to sin. He's not saying we know it's going to happen, so just do it. Rather, it is simply a recognition that we are by nature sinful and unclean. And that, that phrase in and of itself within the liturgy always, you know, always rubs me a little bit. Because what it does is it, all, it almost makes it appear that the Lord creates you by nature sinful and unclean. And that is not the way that he's ordered his creation. So you see there in, my, in the outline, by nature, that's nature inherited from Adam. Okay? The Lord, as St. Athanasius says, the Lord does not create death, nor does he create sin. So the nature which you receive from the Lord, in the garden, from the dust, he breathes the breath of life into it. The nature you receive there is pure and holy and without sin. The nature that you receive from Adam, that is the nature which is sinful and unclean. So, you notice already, with talk of, if your tongue doesn't get the best of you, then you're a perfect man, you notice already that the tongue is the driving force behind the body. Okay? This is great stuff from James. The most important member of the body is your tongue. So he goes on, if we put bits into the mouth of the horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. How many of you watch Deadliest Catch? Raise your hand now. Oh, yeah, see, that is, all of you should go home this week and watch Deadliest Catch. That is the Christian life. The riggers, the ups and downs, the pilot doesn't know what's going to happen, smokes a pack of cigarettes, then he doesn't know what's going to happen, then he keeps, go home and watch it, it's great. Season, uh, I don't know what season it is, but it's a new season right now. Good stuff. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. So the tongue there, the tongue is that which gives voice to the body. That which gives vo voice to the body. You can understand body there in a few ways. Your physical body, the tongue gives voice. The body of Christ. Whomever is the tongue, that is who gives voice to the body. And the body is the church of Christ. Both broad, big C, Catholic church, and narrow, small c, local congregation. Look at your next page there. The talk of tongue and body together is no accident. There is a direct correlation between what is said and how the body lives. And so Reiki then uh, tries to explain for you what, what James is saying here, beginning first and foremost with the office of the ministry. He is, this is James, thinking of the congregation whose tongue is the teacher or preacher. Okay? So think about all the churches you've been in. Probably for most of you, I would guess, whether you knew it or not, the pastor was very much the tongue of that body. If the pastor said, here we go, we're going to do this, uh, many of you followed. 
And, and throughout history, you could see how that's been a very good thing and a very bad thing. There were some very good pastors, and I don't mean here, I'm talking church Catholic, very good pastors whose tongue led the congregation in the right direction. The tongue is the key member of the body. There have been some pastors who have not been so faithful, and the tongue, the key member of the body, has led the body down a path they didn't want to go. Okay? I once said to someone, a pastor can make a text say just about anything they want. That's why you watch TV and a guy says, you know, give me 10 million bucks, and people do. Why is that? Because the pastor is the tongue of the body. And the pastor, the pastor can make the text say what he wants it to say. And it shows you how powerful the tongue is. If the pastor says to you, do this or do that, throughout Christendom, oftentimes members follow. Okay? So first and foremost, he's warning pastors here. He's thinking of the congregation whose tongue is the pastor. He stands in the pulpit. He speaks. St. John Chrysostom was a great preacher. They called him golden mouth or golden tongue. Okay? But he is also thinking of the congregation whose tongue are the members with the voice. Okay? He's also thinking about the congregation whose tongue are the members with the voice. You see this all the time. You know folks that you probably do, and I don't expect you to give me names, but folks who are, whenever there's a lump of people talking, those people are always in the mix. You know this, right? You've seen people like this. They're always in the mix. Oftentimes the group changes, but as the group moves and progresses and changes, there's one person who's kind of always in the mix. They're the tongue of that group. That doesn't mean it's a bad thing. It just means that's who they are. Congregations are exactly the same way. There are tongues within the congregation apart from the tongue of the pastor. Members themselves have a voice. And I think today, in 21st century America, oftentimes that tongue is even more powerful than the tongue of the pastor. Okay? So James is warning both of us. Pastors, you're a tongue. Members, you're a tongue. Everybody, everybody, from Big C Church to Little C Parish Lotse has a tongue. Some tongues have been put. 1 Timothy 1. St. Paul says to Timothy, you've been put into the office of the ministry. Some tongues have been put by Jesus. While some tongues have put themselves, members. Within the body of Christ, the tongue is the most powerful member. Okay? This all making sense to you? I mean, this is like, when you drive home today, think about all the conversations you've heard and how those can change a congregation or ruin someone's character or move people to do some great things or move people to do some bad things, how powerful the tongue is. So St. Paul, or St. James then, verse 5, how great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. The fire of a tongue, the fire which a tongue receives, is the fire of hell. What makes a fire so stunning, there's nothing more, there's nothing better than on a, you know, on a kind of cool summer's night, to have a fire pit and put a fire, I think they're stunning to watch. I think a lot of people are drawn to that sort of thing. What makes a fire so stunning 
and at the same time so dangerous, is the ability it has to begin as something quite small and end up as something quite disastrous. Think of the wildfires in South Carolina. Fire in some guy's backyard turns into this. That's a fascinating thing, and yet it's quite disastrous. But St. James is saying that is precisely the way that the tongue works. It is a fire. And it's especially disastrous when it sets fire to the church, as he says, staining the whole body and destroying the course of life. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. You are not animals. Right? Uh, what was I? Ah. Oh, another great show, Wife Swap. You should all watch that, too. <laughs> this week, your assignment is to watch Deadliest Catch and Wife Swap. Wife Swap had a vegan family and a family who only ate meat. Um, I'm not going to ask where you guys all line up, but the vegan woman said she's out with, uh, I don't know what she, like a seance over a little flower, and she said, the animals, I am one with the animals. There is no distinction between human beings and animals. I mean, her point was we're equals. Well, it's nice to treat animals well, but you're not equals. <laughs> I mean, in Eden, the Lord says to Adam, I will give you dominion over the animals. So you are different than an animal. And he intentionally, James, intentionally uses the example of animals. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed. You can tame an animal and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. This is fascinating. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. And a point of clarity, which may be helpful going forward, James here is not warning against speaking the truth, okay? Regardless of how hard it may be to hear. If you go to your doctor and your doctor says, you're going to die in 10 weeks. You may not like it, but James isn't saying, you know, that's the kind of tongue that needs to be destroyed. He's speaking the truth. And you may not like it, but that doesn't, that doesn't take away from the fact that it is the truth. It needs to be spoken, and it needs to be heard. Rather, what James is talking about, what he is warning us against, is speaking lies, gossip, slander, and words of hatred. Okay? So sometimes, you know, as a parent, you may say to your kid, don't touch that outlet. The kid may get upset, but James is not saying, you're the kind of tongue that doesn't need to speak, or you're the kind of tongue that sets fire to the family. No, it's the truth. Don't touch the outlet. <laughs> However, speaking words that are evil, that are lies, that are gossip, that are slander, that are words of hatred, those are the kinds of words of which James is warning us against. And here's the strange irony of it all. The tongue controls the body. The tongue controls the body. And yet it cannot itself be controlled. I don't know if you've thought about that. Your tongue controls your body. And yet the tongue itself cannot be controlled. If you could control the tongue, as James says, you would be a perfect man or a perfect woman. The tongue controls the body, and yet it cannot itself be controlled. The tongue, mine and yours, determines every step of our life together. 
And yet its own steps, the next word and the word after that, cannot be, deter cannot be determined. Our tongues control this community. And yet we don't know what the next thing coming out of that, that mouth's tongue will be. We don't know where and when and why and how it will strike next. Though we know that when it strikes, it will have a newfangled hold on this community, taking us where we do not want to go. That's why James uses the example of a bit in a horse's mouth. You take the horse sometimes where it doesn't want to go. The same thing happens in our community. It is the tongue. The tongue is said to be an uncontrollable evil and full of lethal poison, like a snake that is too elusive to catch, but whose fangs are deadly. Okay, and the overtones there that James, that James is using, the overtones there are of Eden and the devil. People are most afraid of three things, darkness, falling, and snakes. Darkness is complete neutrality. There are no points of reference, no ways out. Falling is a lack of gravity, and gravity is all you know. Snakes. There are no other creatures in all the world quite like a snake. And all three things have some connection to the devil and some connection to evil. And it's been proven. They've done all these studies. Those are the three things people are most afraid of. Darkness, falling, and snakes. So isn't it interesting that James uses the image of a snake to talk about our tongue? Verse 9, with it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and curse. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. And apparently what he's seen in his own congregation is that folks are leading a double life. Okay? They're participating in the liturgy of the church, but using their tongues to do evil within the community. You see this all the time. You see it in our community. You see it in other communities. People who use their tongue to worship Jesus and also use their tongue to do evil within the community. Yet how we worship, and this is, you know, this is very important, especially as a Lutheran. We often say um, the law of, of, of prayer, or the law of belief, is the law of prayer. So what you believe influences how you worship. That's why the liturgy is so important. You believe specific things, therefore you worship a, separate, a specific way. How we worship, though, should also be a catalyst for how we live. Life is but an extension of the liturgy. And I hope you see this. I think you do. It takes a very, it takes a sacramental worldview to see this. Life is but an extension of the liturgy. What we say and do should be Christologically formed. That's back to point one, understanding who Jesus is and liturgically rooted. It should all flow from the liturgy. The church fathers talked about the liturgy of life. The liturgy ends on Sunday with, strengthen us in true faith toward thee. Okay, so that's the liturgy of the church. 
and fervent love toward one another. That's the liturgy of life. And when you hear, you know, the service has ended, go in peace, you should walk out the door and embody the liturgy. What is the liturgy? The liturgy is forgiveness and life and Christ present and grace and mercy and obedience. You should walk out the doors and you should embody all that the liturgy is. And who gives life to the liturgy himself? Jesus the Christ. A theological discrepancy, says Scare, is caused because men in their creation is God's image. Resemble him. You resemble God but fail to see the image in others. Again, the theme is repeated, that a Christian cannot have one attitude to God and another to God's human creature. You look at the next page. Treating others differently than we treat the Lord is a theological discrepancy. Treating others differently than we treat the Lord. There are very few people in this room that don't treat the Lord well. All of you do. Um, and there are very few people in this community within the church at large who don't treat the Lord very well. Oftentimes what we miss is in treating others well. But that's a theological discrepancy because the Lord is in your neighbor. And you, may you may remember back now to six, seven, eight, nine weeks ago where we talked at length about welcoming the stranger, the neighbor who comes in. Remember James says, you say you're going to make him a footstool. He's not a footstool. Why? Because Jesus resides in his flesh. So if I speak ill of Dave, and my tongue gets the best of me, it's not, that, not just that I'm speaking ill of Dave, I'm speaking ill of Jesus Christ himself. Because Dave and Jesus are one flesh. And discrepancy. Discrepancy leads to sin, and sin leads to broken community, and broken community leads to chaos. And then we are back to where we were before the Lord gave his gospel-ordering word, let there be. The very first thing the Lord does, says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, right? He creates, it's chaos. The first thing he does is he brings order to creation. Let there be. And to have chaos in a community is to return the community to what it was before the Lord gave his gospel-ordering word. It's to return a community to the way of the law and not the way of the gospel. So the question is, is that where we want to be? That's the question James is asking his congregation. Is that where you want to be? Okay? And all of it goes back to the tongue. So um, just remember that. The tongue is by far the most important member of the body. Question. Okay. Deadliest catch. What was the other one? Wife swap. They have reruns now, I think, on the WB. Uh, all that talk about pastors spending time in devotion and prayer it doesn't happen. Uh, it's just, that's just, you know, sermon illustration. Um, any questions or comments? Yeah. Yeah, great point. The point is, 
the tongue is so dangerous, and yet every week you receive the Eucharist on your tongue. And there is something to be said for a Christological touch. So he doesn't just touch you. You know, we talk about he touches, it's kind of abstract. He actually touches your tongue. I'd never thought about that. That might make you think next time about taking the Eucharist on your tongue. It is very strange that he puts it right there. His touch, Jesus, boom, right on your tongue. Good insight. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. The point, the point was oftentimes there's a thought process that goes along with all this. That's very true. Sometimes people speak before they think, which people operate differently. I often, I, I try to think before I speak. Um, some people speak before they think. I don't know, if, I mean, I suppose there's some advantages to both. You, you, you actually get to see kind of raw passion when people speak before they think. That doesn't always mean it's right, though. And you kind of you get a disjointed sense of, um, rationality when people think before they speak. So there's probably a happy medium there. Um, but you are right, there's a thought process that oftentimes goes into what you say. At the same time, to be liturgically rooted, you remember morning prayer, the first prayer, the first prayer that the church gives us to say in the morning begins which way? Do you remember? Matins. You remember how Matins begins? O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. So the very first prayer of the morning, this is, this is what I mean by being liturgically rooted. You wake up in the morning, you make the sign of the cross, and oftentimes you'll see folks make the sign of the cross even over their lips. Oh Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. Essentially what you're saying is, sanctify my tongue. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, that's part of the reason, because what he's saying here is, the pastor, she said she's seen it done before sermons. That's exactly right, because the, pa the pastor is the tongue of the congregation in many respects. So you pray that your words be sanctified. Sanctify the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts in the Psalms. Okay? If you begin with Jesus in a Christological touch, um, all is well. What else? Anything else? Everybody okay? I don't know what's next. We'll have to see what comes next in, um, in James. James 3, Taming the Tongue. The righteous shall live by faith. That'll be fun. Um, so we'll, we'll keep plugging along. But, you know, if you've got questions as you go home and reflect upon this, bring it back next week. We'll try to answer those, okay?
Nothing else? All right, let's pray. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.